Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman Podcast, and I am back and excited to have with me Steph Stefandos. And Steph was referred to me by Johnny Elsasser, a man whom I respect greatly, largely for the personal growth that he's done throughout his life. And it sounds like Steph has done the same. And Steph is a men's coach, a relationship coach, degree in behavioral sciences, and he's doing some pretty amazing stuff. So I'm really psyched for this conversation. Steph, how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Lots so to dig into it, like, tell me a little bit about your story, because your story is pretty enthralling. Yeah, I've never heard anyone say, call it that before, but I that. <laughs> I'm a fan of the word enthralling. I've just never heard anyone call it that. It's cool. Um, so, I mean, I'll start when I was younger, right? And so, just to give just to give some context, because I'm I'm a big believer in, in my understanding of human development and um and social development, is that we very much largely are shaped by our environment and then how we interpret those experiences that we have in our environment. And so growing up, um, it was a very difficult, my interpretation of my life was very difficult. There was a lot of love there and there was a lot of turmoil and chaos and terror as well, which was very confusing as a little kid. And even when I look back now, I still feel confused sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm not saying that's better or worse than, hey, I just lived in chaos and there was no love or, (laughs) uh, or anything like that. It's not about comparison. It's about, you know, our individual experiences. And so my individual experience around that was very challenging. I felt pulled between, you know, my dad trying to make it back in Greece. In Greece, I'm half Greek, half Italian. And we, we lived in Australia and then we moved to Greece and my first language was Greek and we came back to Australia because economically it was really hard there and economically it was difficult in Australia as well. I think we were maybe like upper lower class, so to speak, right, in the upper echelon of lower class. Um, you know, we weren't not eating. We were definitely eating. We had shelter. Um, but it was, I remember just the chaos around money and finances and making ends meet and paying bills and all those things. And that was a really big challenge and just being pulled from different countries and not being able to speak English and coming back and bullying and being teased and being overweight and a lot of violence and volatility in my home between my parents to, you know, towards myself and my younger brother of five years and, you know, amongst them as well, between them. And it was just, it was just really challenging growing up. And, you know, I was very shy and timid as a kid, very withdrawn, very sad, very felt alone in the world, felt very much misunderstood um, and not really, couldn't really connect with people. So I would try to connect with people and either it was really awkward for me or I'd give too much of my heart and I just, I kept, the, the trust kept breaking. So I found it very difficult to trust people. And then I hit my teens and, you know, as, as we, we often can't see the forest through the trees and hindsight's a beautiful thing. You know, the, the family home, as I started developing and, you know, more testosterone surging through my body and I just started changing as a boy moving into manhood. Um, I found friends in my neighborhood that I really connected with. And because I didn't never wanted to be at home, I did everything I could to sort of be with my friends because I finally found some trust. And, you know, I started playing soccer and basketball and I started losing a little weight and started having a little more confidence and all that suppressed anger and sadness and all that just started coming out and leaking out. And so I started getting very angry and aggressive and full of rage and, and very short and impatient and abrasive and, and just really wasn't very pleasant to be around. And then as I started hitting my later teens and, you know, discovering girls and, and sex and all those things. And I started late. I started late in comparison to, you know, kids were having sex when I was 11 years old. I was just blown away. Yeah, I was blown away by the wow. primary school. I was like, whoa. I, that was very awkward for me and very confronting. I mean, my first sexual experience was when I was, I don't know, 17 and a half years old, right? Like, you know, full sexual experience, I should say. Mm-hmm. And the truth of that is, is that my friend took me to a prostitute and that was my first sexual experience. And I didn't even masturbate before that. I masturbated after that first sexual experience. And again, super awkward, super strange, but I started developing these patterns and habits around how I treated women and how I sought for pleasure. 
And that took me down a path of infidelity and hypersexualization and, and sex compulsion and love addiction and uh, fear of intimacy and hiding in novelty and variety and, and all of those things for so many years and wearing masks and facades and pretending to be someone that I'm not in partnership. Um, but really just seeking this sense of freedom or love outside of myself and outside of the committed relationships or, or you know, or faux pseudo committed relationships that I was stating I was in. And so, you know, I, I just, a lot of my youth was just aggression and fighting and sex and hedonism and really lost, very, very lost. And, and I had these massive wild dreams for business and being presence in the world and serving humanity and all those things, right? Um, and so I was living these multiple lives and I was just so out of integrity. And I was so out of integrity because I was so scared of touching my trauma and not dealing with it. I didn't have safe places to deal with it. I tried working with counselors and psychologists and all those good things. And I just couldn't break the shame cycles. I couldn't get through the shame that I was running from and hiding from. So I'd fall short. I'd touch the surface. So I'd dip my toe in the depth, but then I'd pull all the way out. And it wasn't until I was in my early thirties when I was with a woman who found out I was cheating and it completely reorientated my life and completely changed my life. And all the shame came to me, flooded back from when I was young, all the pain, all the trauma, and it started coming, it flooded, but then it started coming in stages and more of it came and more of it came and I couldn't ignore it anymore and I didn't want to be that person. I just didn't want to be that man who, I didn't want to be that man who just kept hiding, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and through false bravado or pretending to have a lot of money when I had nothing, I was in massive debt, you know, because I was so ashamed of who I was because I'd never dealt with all of that pain from the past. And so there began my, my journey. You know, I'm nearly 40 in, in less than uh, in about a month. I'm, I'm 40 years old. And, you know, 10 years ago is really when I started that journey of depth. And the promise I made myself, and I'll stop in a moment, the promise I made myself was when I had these realizations around, I don't want to live like this anymore, I had three choices. I either commit suicide, and I thought of that many times, I either end up in a mental asylum because the places that I'm going to within my own psyche are just so tumultuous, so turbulent that I don't know, so murky and chaotic, I don't know if I can get out. Or live through this, get through this, move through this, and maybe share it with someone that I could be of service to, or yeah. at the very least just transform myself. And very ble blessedly, if that's a word, um, I transitioned through the third option, uh, not without hardship and not without hitting rock bottom multiple times and having my skull and my testicles dragged across rock bottom multiple times, <sighs> jagged, sharp rocks. However, um, I'm very grateful that I've moved through that and, and I am where I am because I chose to do the inner work today and I continue to be that person that's open to my shortcomings and open to uh, possible evolutions that I can move through if I'm just open to it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. It, it strikes me that it, I, I think it's a hell of a story and good job on, you know, being heroic and courageous enough to face your inner demons. It, it also strikes me that there's a lot of themes in there that I've heard from a lot of men, you know, looking for external yeah. validity, looking for the money, but, you know, kind of fronting that you've got more money than you do, but I don't think the money brings you happiness anyway. Um, there's, you know, the anger, the aggression, the violence, the hiding behind masks, all that stuff is stuff that most men that I know, including myself have experienced. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fascinating. I, I want, you know, I think of the evolved caveman as kind of the heroic journey, because I, I think that it is a hero's journey to go inside because it's scary as hell at times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you said, you know, you had a tumultuous inner psyche or inner conversations. And I think that's absolutely on point. Yeah. Um, I hear that. And, you know, I'm thinking back now to those times where it was just so intense, 
so so intense and I just wanted to give up and give in and I wanted to go back to old patterns of behaving, old ways yeah. of being. I, it was just convenient, right? It was familiar and it felt safe and I felt so unsafe for so much of my life. I just wanted to stop feeling unsafe. Um, but something maybe bigger than me, greater than me, um, propelled me through and and kept me moving, uh, kept me moving through. Yeah. I just, and I, so I really appreciate the work you're doing because I think there's so many men that get stuck at that stage of anger, violence, lack of intimacy, yeah. wearing masks, um, because that's how we're socialized and we just never get past it, never find happiness, never find vulnerability, or I would say authentic love. Mm, agreed. So what are, so go into, tell me a little bit about the areas of relationship in which you focus. So I was looking, you know, is it friendship? Is it romantic? Is it parental? Is it self? All, all the above? All, all of the above, all of the above, because they're all interconnected. Everything touches everything, mm-hmm. right? And so the the core relationships that we begin with are our early childhood relationships. So those to our primary caregivers, often our biological parents, but not always the case, right? Uh, including any significant individuals in our lives, the teachers, grandparents, aunties, uncles, et cetera, you know, elder siblings, but really because there in those early childhood relationships, we form our identity in relation to those relationships. And the way that we socialize as adults is really an effect and a byproduct of how we have been interacted with as children, as infants, as babies in the womb as well. Um, and how we've interpreted the meaning of those, of those, um, uh, relationships. So we often deify our parents. And so when we figure out as kids, you know, unconsciously that parents aren't perfect and they fall from grace, we either take that reasonably well or we don't, right? Um, and I'm being simplistic when I say that. Yeah, There's yeah, obviously yeah. No, many variables that feed into that. But we either take that well or we don't. And how we take that really sets up how we um, attract and repel love and intimacy as adults and the tactics that we use unconscious and conscious, right? The, mm-hmm. the strategies that we use for mateship and, and intimacy and connection. Cause we all want that. We're relational beings at some level. We all want that. Even if we're quote unquote wounded psychologically, emotionally, socially, relationally, even if we have, well, if we have, um, uh, like systemic physiological dysfunction in our brains per se, that changes obviously mm. the way that we socialize. That's another completely other conversation. Yeah. But we, you know, we, we're impacted by those early childhood relationships. So we start there, right? And then of course our intimate relationships are often reflections, you know, adult intimate sexual romantic relationships are often reflections of those early childhood relationships. So mm-hmm. that's where we spend most of our time. But yeah, friendships, colleagues, they all matter because they're all reflections of us at some level. They're all mirrors of who we are in the world, how we think, how we feel, what we're missing within ourselves, what we what we can have access to, but we can't quite touch like all of that, right? Yeah. And, and I love your line of all these areas touch one another because I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things that I've looked at recently is sort of just with curiosity, how are my patterns in my romantic relationship affected by or kind of an overlay of past romantic relationships or a result of my childhood experiences generally with my parents. And so, you know, when I'm in a disagreement with my fiance, sometimes we'll ask one another, is this really about us? Or is this about, you know, the past relationship, like your marriage perhaps, or is this about your childhood? Mm. It's a great, and it's a great question. And, 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 you know, something that we, we teach my wife and I teach um, is, is can you see, and we'll use a seven-year-old just as an example, but can you see, the seven-year-old little boy or girl and your partner when they're emotionally activated or when you're emotionally activated, can you see them in such a way that, you know, you're not seeing their adult self right now. You're not seeing their reactivity and their pain, but you're seeing that tormented or that in pain little one that's activating their physical body in the present moment to have them reacting and protecting themselves and defending themselves in a very specific way. Yeah, I really like that idea that we have multiple, like there's multiple Stephs within Steph. So there's a, yes. I think of like a five-year-old Steph within you, there's like a 15-year-old Steph, and then there's the functional adult. Yeah. And that five-year-old's the one that's, you know, often throwing a tantrum and pissed or hurt. And then the the teenager is kind of the defiant, angry, 
part of us. And so in my head, I'm always having conversations between the, the three of me in my head, which I think it, it kind of cracks me up because, you know, when I was training for psychology, if someone told me that I would have been, that's kind of insane. Now it seems functional to me. I know it's cool, right? It is, is that it is, dissociative it, identity disorder, John? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Fascinating. It's I mean, fascinating. So do you play how, around with those kind of ideas mm, with like having different yous within you that need to oh, be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's the, I mean, and, that's the inner child work. I mean, to, yeah. to me, that's part therapy, parts therapy. That's Gestalt style therapy, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, um, uh, back here is it Gottman's work, Gottman, Gottman's work on, you know, on, on um, sorry, Gottman's work on, on relationship, um, uh, on, on relationships, but that's also integrates inner child work. But who am I thinking of? I can't remember his name. Internal family systems. Well, yeah, internal family systems that is another comes, one as well. Absolutely. Mind, but yeah. it's, it's that, that essentially is playing with all these different versions of ourselves that have carried intense experiences through, through our lives. And then they play out in anything that resembles that experience, even in an iota of that experience to be hyper-protective or to prepare for it, right? It's the, it's the intricate function of the ego and the mind. I mean, you know, this, I would say even better than me, given your background, like, you know, well, I, I mean, so one of the things that comes to mind is, so in your, in your work, you talk about three pillars where, you know, dissolving fear, which I think is a big one, standing in your own power and then creating epic love. So go into a little bit of fear because that one interests me for men in particular. Cause I, I don't think, I mean, none of us are like, Oh yeah, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't, we just wouldn't say that. Yeah. Fear is an interesting one. It's taken a lot for me to say um, in my life. Yep. I'm scared. Yep, I'm afraid mm-hmm. of that. Or I, I carry fear around that. Or I know there are unconscious fears around. So I'll tell you, I'll give you an example, right? So for so much of my life, what what really drove uh, a lot of my actions was yes, those early childhood experiences. But if we were to get into the minutia and get a little more specific, one of those things was uh, not having freedom. And so I associated being in an intimate relationship with being unfree. And instead of having the courage to you know, express what my needs were in those moments or to express those fears. I, I didn't really understand it at the time. I would have this sense of, I feel like I'm being annihilated or suffocated in this relationship. And my release valve was, I'll go visit a prostitute. I'll go have sex, casual sex. I'll pick one night stand, whatever. Like I would, that would be my outlet. That would be my release. And the moment that happened, it was this, oh, hmm. I can come back to the relationship now. And in my mind, I justified it as, well, that's normal. That's what people do. We cheat. Maybe she's cheating on me. I don't know, whatever. Like that, it was, it was so distorted because I was so stuck in my pain and so stuck in my fear. And so that fear of freedom, of not having freedom and what I perceived to be freedom, right, was driving so many, so many of my actions until I healed that wound. And I, and I can tell you the source of that wound as well. I would have, I, I also, experienced enmeshment and entanglement, parentification with my mother. And so I would remember my mother saying, oh, if it wasn't for you two boys, I wouldn't be married to your father. Um, you know, don't get married. <laughs> There's, you know, I would see my mom dreaming about and talking about being an Egyptologist and that she couldn't do any of that because she has a family now. Like all of this growing up, you know, it affects yeah. the psyche of a child in yeah. so many different ways. And so- so this fear of freedom and watching my parents just be how they were, but parts of me still craving intimacy and not knowing how to be. I just thought, well, if I lie and wear masks, I can have the best of all worlds, but it doesn't work like that. Well, and, and I think you, and I appreciate the examples always, because I think they give me and listeners, it makes it more concrete for us, more easy to understand. And it, you, I think you put your finger on the pulse of a key issue, which is I, I think we have competing drives within us as humans, which kind of fuck us up at times. So, I mean, in this case, it's, you know, we have a desire, a drive for connection and intimacy. And then we also have a, a drive for freedom or autonomy. And those two can directly come into conflict with each other. The other one I like is this idea that we need novelty or uncertainty. And then we also need certainty. Well, those two are directly in opposition with each other. So how do we, you know, kind of manage, how do we, you know, remind ourselves that we are large enough to contain multitudes, paradoxes, and contradictions? 
I think we need to surround ourselves with people that see us. I think we need to surround uh-huh. ourselves with people that love us and care for us, that challenge us, that call us forward, that that bring out the best of us and also love the worst of us. Well, I, and I think, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just going to literally just say, you know, we are relational beings. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. And we, yeah, we are where we are today, good, bad or ugly, irrespective of what your opinion or perspective is on that. We've evolved where we are today largely – um, because of our socialization. Yeah. And, and I like to joke and there's truth in the joking of, you know, when I kind of had that realization that we are relational beings, that our happiness is large, largely dependent upon our relationships. I was annoyed because I can be kind of introverted. I can be, you know, mm. I can be lost in my head. I like being alone. And then I was like, son of a bitch. You mean like, I gotta, I gotta make friendships and, you know, <laughs> be with people and like, man. And, and so, and that took a little bit of a mindset shift, Mm, mm. but I think it's absolutely important. And I I don't think men are socialized in that direction to either value relationships at the level that they should be valued, which I think is number one. And they're not socialized to learn the skills to do well in relationships. And I'm, I'm primarily talking romantic relationships here, but friendships to a lesser extent. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I wonder how how much of a lesser extent friendships are because one of the key issues that men face, and I agree with everything you've just said, and one of the key issues that men face is isolation. Yeah, like men men really struggle to have meaningful friendships where they can share themselves and trust men to hold that and and trust these men to not judge them as well. Well, I think that we get into friendships. Many of us can create friendships, but the way that we the way that we show up in those male friendships is we communicate through put down, one-upmanship, sarcasm, insults, and and there's very little depth there for most. Yeah, yeah I, I, I very no, I, I know it's a generalization, and I agree with that generalization. I think it's very true. I, I, I and I don't, I can't remember you know the extensive research research that's been done in that area. But what I would also say. Is that you know we all we we come from either we relate from either clarity or we relate from our shadow, you know again to simplify things. So mm-hmm. we'll either relate from a place of oh I've healed that wound. You know my father abused me, my father abandoned me, my father left me, my father told me he hated me. That wounded me. That caused me to behave and form person that substructures of my personality that behaved in this way and related in this way for so many years. I have done and am doing work on healing that, and so now I can relate differently to people with less threat. You know, I'm not unconsciously slash consciously viewing everything and everyone as a threat or the percentage of that has come down mm-hmm. or we're just going to keep coming from our shadow. It's the unexpressed, unexposed aspects of self. Well, and I love what you just said there because it speaks to me of the the primal world beliefs um, research that Jared Clifton is doing, which is, you know, that we have these beliefs about the world at large. And I look at it, I look at each of them as kind of probabilities or percentages. So for instance, the world is mostly safe or mostly dangerous. And, and where do you, where do you stand on a belief in terms of a one to a hundred scale? And, and I think most men tend towards the world as a dangerous place. And I think that the more we can get to revising that to the world is mostly safe. People are mostly good. People are mostly honest. Now, and I'm not going to say hundred percent, but I would say, you know, 85%, 90%. Um, but that's, a, it creates a much different world to be in than if I believe 90% of the people out there are going to abuse me or take advantage of me. 100%. You're going to come from a place of everyone's a threat or most people are a threat. Therefore I will treat them that way. That could mean yeah. I'm going to retract and retreat, or it means I'm going to be hyper aggressive and I'm going to be on the back foot or be on the front foot. And that over time creates patterns, neurological behavior, relational in our being that continue to play out habitually. And so we, we lose that contact. You know, we lose that, we lose that connection to other human beings and we suffer for it. Like we really, we really do suffer for it. And a direct result of our perceptions from my perspective is if you grew up unsafe and you haven't resolved that. And when I say resolve that, I'm not just talking about spiritually, spiritual and emotional resolution. I'm talking about completing the cycle of trauma physiologically in our nervous systems and our bodies. Mm -hmm. If we haven't gone through processes of that, 
where we we're able to re-equilibrate the nervous system and move it out of out of a hyper activated sympathetic nervous system response state into more of a um um Parasympathetic. Uh, sorry, I had a mental block there. Yeah, Par- parasympathetic no, no. nervous system response state. Um, we're going to struggle in life and we will keep coming from that's a threat, that's a threat, that's a threat. We have to resolve our trauma and our pain that has been repressed. Otherwise, we will continue to have those world beliefs that essentially push people away and isolate us as men. And that it tells and us that I we think can't they trust. become self-fulfilling prophecies too. Absolutely. Which is wild. And, and the other thing, you know, you mentioned safety and security, and I, that's the older I get, the more important I think that is to be able to feel safe and secure, at least in places or at times. And, you know, one of the things in positive psychology that fascinates me is if we don't feel safe and secure, we've effectively cut off the possibility of experiencing half of the positive emotions of which we know. So, you know, without feeling safe and secure, you don't laugh, for example. Sure. There's no space and, for you know, if so, if you want to be happy, which I think every one of the 7.3 billion people on the planet ultimately do, we take different paths to get there, some successful, some not. But if you want to be happy, I think we got to work on that safety and security piece, which means dealing with the trauma, to your point. Yeah, dealing with the trauma in um, relationship most of the mm-hmm. time. Like there's definitely aspects of one's journey, and, and I can account for this personally, many, a lot of it actually, where we're in solitude, not not isolation yeah, and aloneness, but solitude. Like we're, we're on that path ourselves. We have to, it's the hero's journey. We have to, you know, walk through the fire by ourselves, right? And, and there's something special in being witnessed um, by our peers in, in non-judgmental and compassionate ways that hold us through our, volatility that hold us through our transition um and that's ancient mm-hmm. and those before us our ancestors knew that in, yeah. in, in very elaborate rites of passage that took place right and i think we're missing a lot of those rituals or rites of passage in this day and age and i think we're suffering for uh, it we i completely agree hence why part of the work that i do as well it involves a lot of that so let me um, let me move to romantic relationships, and you know you talk about epic love. We kind of skipped being in your power, but I wanted to go to like what does your relationship now look like with your wife, and how is it different from past relationships where you were less evolved? Yeah, very very cl- very clear differences. So the first difference is honesty, transparency, right? The the level of honesty that we have safety. Like I've brought some pretty big topics to my wife and likewise, and, and we do our absolute best, A, to not judge each other, and B, if we do, and it gets quote unquote out of hand, we repair very quickly because we're both so willing to repair very quickly. We don't always get it right, but we have big conversations. We share what's on our hearts very truthfully, very honestly, very empathetically with as much compassion as we can. My wife is amazing at that with me. Uh, being compassionate and non-judgmental with me, I'm I'm not as, and this isn't again, this isn't a competition, but I'm not as good at um, at that as she is because of because well, of my upbringing. <laughs> and probably that too. You're male, um, but she's phenomenal at that, and that really helps me settle into my nervous system and feel safer. But that's a big part of it as well. What's di- what the difference is now is the safety. It's like there's no shame in talking about our needs. Um, there's no shame in talking about what our thoughts are on the relationship or the other or ourselves, as long as we were respectful, of course. Right. And gentle. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, that's necessary to get the, me- if you want the person to hear your message, I like really absorb it. If, if you're, you know, I've found, uh, in my life, I've been volatile previously and, and all that person is experiencing is the volatility in their nervous system, which is putting them into shock or fight or flight. And therefore the message is lost in translation, in the translation uh-huh. of hormones, you know, in the translation of, of reactivity. So, so they're the big differences and, you know, we're just both super clear, man. Like we met later in life as well. You know, I was, um, how old was I? 36 years old, you know, nearly 37, so 36 and a half years old when I met, you know, Christine. So I'd experienced a lot by that point, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot. So 37 years old, 37 and a half, I'd done a lot. Um, yeah, I, I you know, we're both 
you know, more mature. She had been married previously, no children, but being married previously. So there's this, we had life experiences and we just were at a place where we sort of, we just knew what we wanted, right? We knew who we were. Yeah. We knew enough of who we are. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not like I haven't changed, but fundamentally I haven't. Like after my, call it my rebirth experience, I've had a couple actually since then, but you know, those, those big rebirth experiences, I know who I am. That goes a long, long way. You know, men in their twenties and their early thirties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew nothing yeah. back then. I thought, but I thought I knew everything. Well, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I love what you have to say about safety and non-judgment and compassion. And I mean, it's funny because you use many of the similar words. Like I would talk about, you know, be non-judgmental, be curious, be objective, be compassionate, mm-hmm. try to communicate as gently as possible. And, and I think the other part of it is assume positive intent. If you're assuming yes. that your partner is coming at you with positive intent and they're just curious or they have a question, or maybe this is a conversation that would help you get along better in the future, it's much better than, oh my God, she's attacking me again. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I agreed. So do, is the communication much different? And yeah, how? it is. It is. It's so it, it, in all the ways that we've we've already discussed. So it, it's it's more gentle, it's more fair, it's more considerate. It's less about oh, I'm the the pain that I'm in is all that matters right now. It you know, and how that looks different is you know we'll use techniques such as NVC or Imago dialogue. Um, informally, you know, we're not, we're not like mm-hmm. super strict with it or rigid with it by any means, but we, you know, we do our best to adhere to the principles. Um, you know, we ask each other and we say, Hey, I've got something that's really important on my heart. When can we talk about it? I mean, we allocate time. I mean, every month we, we get together. I mean, we live together <laughs> every month, specifically on the last Sunday of every month, we come together. We ask ourselves as a few key questions around our um, our uh, relationship, how we've treated each other, what's, what we feel is missing, what can be improved on, what we're really grateful for, what we're happy for. And we do gratitude often, obviously, on a daily yeah. basis with each other. That's but a great one. Yeah, this is this is just more more specific. It's like, a, it's really like a monthly, it's more than a monthly check-in. It's a, it's a, what has been the lay of the land the last month? Like really let's get into it if, if we need to, right? So we have things in place like that as well. So can I, can I ask you, when you go for that monthly check-in, do you sometimes go back to like disagreements that you've had to fine tune the communication for future disagreements? Sometimes, sometimes okay. if, if it's called for, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, that's one of the things I've realized in my advanced age is kind of this, I have a visual of a spiral, right? That, Sometimes, or maybe earlier on in the relationship, it's time to revisit some of these disagreements so that we can go back to them with less emotion, more curiosity. And, you know, what did, what was going on there for you? Like, what was the trigger? Like, I'm still confused a little bit, or this is still hurting me from what you said. And so that you can get a better apology or you can get more validation. And I, I think that revisiting those in an upward spiral with an attempt to yeah, I guess look at them and analyze them with greater objectivity is a really healthy way to go. I agree. That's the key though, what you just said then, upward spiral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and more often than not, like that does happen, but it's only if it's recent. More often than not, we're really good at repairing, uh, when we're getting better and better at it, very good at repairing quite quickly. Okay, so what does that look like for you? Well, Tell depends, us about repair attempts. Well, yeah, it depends, it depends on the argument or depends on the disagreement or the pain point, right? Um, often what it looks like, not always, but often what it looks like is me being reactive and that hurting Christine. So me either raising my voice or being very rigid with an idea um, and then presenting that to her in an abrasive way. And then what it looks like in terms of repair is me recognizing that and then apologizing for that. And then if I feel that I need to, you know, a sincere apology as well. I mean, she doesn't, honestly, man, I feel like I've, I'm very blessed in that way. I, she doesn't need much. Like as long as it's sincere yeah. and real, she really doesn't need, and she's very good at discerning whether it is or it isn't. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't offer something fake. Right? I just wouldn't. Yeah. Well, but a lot of that has to do with tone of voice. And so one Big of the time. things I noticed is that when I get flooded in a disagreement yep. and I'm trying to make a repair attempt, my first repair attempt is often lacking that sincere tone of voice, right? It's kind of monotone, maybe a little robotic because I'm still a little bit angry or hurt, You're still stuck in but I'm, I'm trying to make the repair attempt. And so one of the things that my, my fiance and I had to figure out was, look, if you can go with me on that half step, if you can take that as a beginning apology, then with a couple more minutes, I can get to a more sincere apology that'll satisfy you. 
Yeah, and that's a that's a and that's a great conversation. Sometimes we we have that as well, right? Like sometimes I'll say to Christine, "I know how I'm delivering this isn't good. I just can I ask that you really hear me, and you know I'm going to come. I'm, you know I'm going to come around because I do every time. You know, yeah. I'm just using me as an example. I don't want to use her as an example because it, it's easier to use me because it's my you know personal experience as opposed to speaking it's, on behalf yeah. of. Someone else, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and so, and she's very good at being open to that. And and honestly, we can repair within seconds and minutes. Um, what about so the other part of that skill though is receiving the repair attempt well? So there's yeah, you know one's making excellent. the repair attempt. I'm yes. sorry, and the other one is yes. okay. Shit, they've apologized. Now I got to kind of work to let my anger go or annoyance yes. or hurt. Yes, again, what does that I'm, look like on your side when she? I'm pretty good with you that. Yeah. and apologizes. And then what's your repair attempt, like receiving it? What does that look like? I'm pretty good at receiving it. And when I say pretty good, I'm pretty effective at receiving it and like really embracing it. Um, you know, all things being equal, giving it sincere and so forth. Um, depending on the intensity of it, I may uh, struggle. It may take me a little longer to release. I'm very somatic, so I'm very much in my body. So I may have to, you know, go box. I may have to lift some weights. I may have to go for a run. I may have to just yeah. do some breathing and movement. Um uh, I may have to clear that within myself, but generally speaking, because there's so much trust as a foundation in our relationship and there's so much love and care in our relationship, um, we, I just, it's just not, you know, we, we always come back to, we have a thing where if we're in disagreement, like one of us will, will clench our fist and put it up in the air and we'll put our fists up in the air and clench our fists. And, and, and it means that, but we always have each other. Like we, no matter what mm. we're going through right now, this is always, and it's just a gentle reminder to get out of the funk that we're in, you know? I like it. Yeah. yeah and it's really effective. It's, it's, I mean, some people, you know, some couples will use like um, random words, like, I don't know, rainbow jelly or something, whatever, or peanut butter or whatever it is, right? Yeah. That sometimes yeah, something gets that's neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, yeah. whatever, you know, like I remember as a, in early on in our relationship, when I would be very reactive and be very jarring for Christine because of her own personal experience growing up and so forth, I would sometimes have a physiological pattern break where I would just drop, I would sit down, I'd put my legs, my feet over my head and I'd talk to her from the plow position. (laughs) And that's the the reaction, right? We'd both laugh and it would completely diffuse the situation. We could speak about it with, you know, with tone and pitch and spacing between our words in a very different way, in a very calm way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I think to me, that's the goal is to have these disagreements as calmly as possible. Although, yeah. you know, Gottman found that some couples are into high conflict and that seems to work for them, but that's not me. And it's not most of the men that I've worked with. So let me ask you this, because one of the things that strikes me from your story in the beginning is it seems to me that you are someone with great emotional depth. Is that true? Y- yes. And great emotional range. And, um, also, I thrive in high conflict too because of my upbringing. So that's that's something that I'm still working on. You know, like it's yeah. I don't I don't seek conflict. I don't have a lot of conflict in my life, to be honest. I'm talking about in my intimate relationship. Like, I'm I'm always good to go. Like, oh, you want to fight? Cool, we're going to fight now. <laughs> yeah, like, and I've got to, I've got to really temper that. And that and that's old old stuff. It's old layers of, yeah. of stuff. You know. But it, it's interesting to me because when I was, you know, you mentioned you were kind of a fish out of water. That you know you couldn't really find anyone that understood you at a young age. I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Most of the men that I talked to have a similar experience. And I think we all, many of us feel like, Oh, I'm the only one that feels things deeply. Everyone else, all the other guys aren't like that. And mm-hmm. my experience has been that I would say 95% of the men that I've worked with over 30 years are exactly the same, that they feel things deeply too. What's, what's been your experience? Very much so. It's just that we're we're told to hide it, or we're told that it's unmanly, yeah. or that it's not masculine, or that feel that the feelings are reserved for the realm of the feminine or for women. And so, many of the men that I work with, even the even the toughest men, um, that have uh, amazing warrior skills, legit warrior skills, need to feel and have yeah. access to that and want more access to that, but they'll either really struggle all their lives with it or they'll break through that. Yeah. I like the idea that the emotions never left us. We left our emotions Yeah, that, you know, we're trying to leave them in the gutter, even though that's humanly impossible. Mm. And so to bury them 
is like it just seems it's our first go-to strategy at a young age. I've I've not heard an exception to that to suppress it. Like I'm, I don't want to feel this shit, but they're too powerful and they come back and they let themselves be known and they bite you in the ass. They do. Um, <laughs> so what about like when you're helping relationships with or helping clients with epic love, creating epic love, what's, what's the, the phrase epic love to you? I imagine it's what you have now as a yeah. model. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For, for my own personal reference point. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a little different for everyone as well. Right. I mean, I don't know if there's a, there's an objective definition of epic, epic love per se. I think it's, you know, similarly to, um, masculinity, you know, as a, as a, as a term, I think there's subjective elements. I think there are some objective elements to that as well that are bound to our evolution and physiology as, as well. And maybe that's a longer conversation for another time, but I think with Epic Love, there's no real objective measure per se. And if, if there is, I think it's more, you know, my subjective perspective. So, and a lot of that is, yeah, it's, it is what I'm experiencing personally in my relationship, that transparency and that openness, that ability to be intimate and connected connected with my wife and, and vice versa, which is, again, you know, remember that's a, that's a wound for me too, right? Like fear of intimacy because intimacy has been yeah. unsafe. I'm still working on that in my relationship with my wife. She's just very patient and is able to see through all of that, right? As much of it as possible, which, which makes her very compassionate and patient. And, and also she sees the bigger picture and she trusts me. She knows that I'm here and I'm here for the long haul because that's the commitment that I've made. And that's the commitment that I want to make. Well, it, it, I imagine she knows that you're doing your work and even yes. within like a disagreement that you're working hard to recover and repair. She sees it. She sees it. It's not yeah. even words. It's, and that's that, a big that's, deal. Yeah. It's a big, the integrity is a big deal. Deeds and words matching are a very big yeah. deal, especially for the feminine. Um, but in any dyna- relational dynamic, like to see that it, it promotes safety and trust and continuity in that friendship or in that, in that um, relationship. And one of the things that I've been struggling with lately, I don't know about struggling with maybe learning more about is this idea of self-awareness. Like I'm, I'm reading Tasha Yurik's book insight and she's done research into self-awareness and found that kind of makes me laugh. 95% of us think we're self-aware, but in truth, it's only about 10 to 15%. And that she says self-awareness is the meta skill of the 21st century, which I am beginning to believe more and more because one of the things that I find difficult in working with men is their lack of self-awareness around, I mean, a number of things, but emotions in particular. Do you find that to be true? Yes. Yes. How do you, how do you increase awareness? Cause I, and it could be values. It could be emotional awareness. It could be, you know, things that you love, hobbies, interests, clear how the others see of, you clear the clutter of the past. Hmm. Make the unconscious conscious, make the unknown known. Yeah. You know, whether that's emotional release techniques, uh, trauma release exercises, whether that's, you know, it's a combination of many things, surrounding yourself with people, again, that value you and see you. It's, you know, deliberate self-evaluation of your life. What areas are you content and happy with and joyful in? And what areas do you feel need improvement? You know, just choosing to be honest. And if you struggle to be honest, surround yourself with people that are honest with themselves so it inspires you to be so and do so. I mean, the complexity of culture over the last, I don't know, a few thousand years, but particularly the last few hundred years is overwhelming the human psyche. Like our collective values and priorities are all about, you know, in the Western world, particularly individualism and making money and success and status and so forth. And we don't allocate time for self-development or personal development the development of the self and the soul. I mean, self-awareness isn't a fucking new thing. It's been around for thousands of years, you know, philosophers yep. from, from Eastern mystics to Western mystics. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, self, self-awareness is one of the cornerstones of uh, spiritual self-evolution or collective evolution, right? Um, so, you know, what, what's going to act as a hindrance to that is our inability to see ourselves fully. And what's going to act as a hindrance to that is us coming from unconscious pain that keeps dictating and directing our actions. Yeah. And, and I love what you said back a little bit ago about, you know, surround yourself with people that are supportive. Cause I, I really think that surrounding yourself with people that are on a similar path, encouraging your growth is a big deal. It makes me think of, you know, some of the research, I think it was from Harvard that shows that you know, if you surround yourself with smokers, odds are you're going to smoke. If you surround mm-hmm. yourself with people that are eating too much, you're going to be eating too much. 
Um, and I think it's true for a lot of areas of life. And so oh, I think I if you're surrounding yourself with men that are denigrating or putting down your attempts to get better at communication with your wife, it's probably not going to support that behavior very well, for example. Yeah. I, I was, you know, in, in my earlier years when I was making transitions, I had to let go of some friendships, not because they did anything wrong, because they were enabling behavior that was tempting me to be that person that I was, you know, prostitution, cheating on my partner and all of that. And I had to create distance in those relationships and I didn't want to. Those relationships at once, one point saved my life. Yeah. They, they pulled me out of that home life. It was very, very challenging, very difficult. We have to make those decisions sometimes. Or we have to for ourselves. And we don't just want to be surrounded by yes men or yes people either. We want to be surrounded by people that yes, um, share very similar values and can encourage us, but also that will challenge us in healthy ways and say, hey, the decisions you're making, could they be different? There are people that are going to be curious about us and ask us those questions. But here's the, here's the catch with curiosity, and I'm sure you know this, is that we can only genuinely be curious when we're not in fear states. And so that means physiologically yep. we can't be in activated fight or flight states. So to be curious fundamentally be, means to be free of our trauma and to not feel threat in those moments. That's the biggest thing, safety. Mm -hmm. Safety is the healing. Peter Levine well, no, speaks to that all the agree. time. Because when we're in that fight, flight, freeze state, that sympathetic nervous system, our minds are trapped in those three pathways as well. So we're very limited in our thinking and we're, we're trapped at at least a low level of negative emotion or uncomfortable emotion. Mm. And that limits our creativity, our innovation, mm. our curiosity, our ability yep. to experience positive yep. emotions. And to support others, to be willing to want to support others because we're stuck in survival. We're going to focus on yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's rampant throughout the world, especially with COVID. Mm. How oh. do you relax into COVID? for example. That's a, that's a tough one. Um, so I, I want to go back to, you know, kind of the idea of being in your own power. Cause one of the things that I think a lot of men can struggle with is this idea of confidence and how does confidence kind of fold into standing in your own power? So, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's essentially the, the correlation, the connection that I make with, with standing your own power means to be confident. And, and one of the key ways that men are able to create confidence in their lives, and I'm just going to come back to the basics, which is do your inner work, right? Explore yourself, self-awareness, know what your triggers and your pain points are, know what your traumas are, deal with them actively in all the ways that we've discussed, plus, plus, plus. But one of the ways that men can really cultivate deeper levels of confidence is through challenge. And it can be super simple simple as, and you know what? I'm tired. I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get up at seven, seven 30 anymore. I want to get up a little early. So I'm going to get up at six 45 or six. So I'm going to set my alarm clock. I'm going to do that for the next 30 days. I'm going to, that's a challenge, right? I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to start hitting the gym four times a week instead of three times a week. Or, you know what? I'm not exercising at the moment and I really want to, but I want to make it fun. I'm going to take up, you know, the regular basketball. I'm going to challenge myself. You know, there's this project that I'm working on at the moment and I think I can do a little bit better. I'm going to put some more hours into it because I'm really passionate about it. I'm going to challenge myself. And then whether they're micro challenges or macro challenges, right? You know, the, the, or I'm going to ask that girl out that I really, that I really like that sits across from me in the office, whatever it is, whatever those challenges are, if you can overcome them, move through them by taking action on what those challenges are, irrespective of what the outcome is, but then have a healthy relationship with the outcome where you're self-reflective and you're asking questions, okay, what could I have done differently? How did that challenge serve me? Have I succeeded in, in my mind what I wanted to succeed and what my quote-unquote results are? Uh, having that, it generates confidence within the self. You know, it's like, you know, whatever it is, it could be, oh, I'm going to do that, that hundred mile bike race, or I'm going to go out camping in the woods by myself for an evening. Like that's going to be a challenge for me. So I'm going to do that. Like whatever it is, especially if it involves nature and using our hands as men, like mastering our hands and building shit and doing shit and being of utility. There's, there's, there's ancient through lines to that, but there's evolutionary yeah. through lines to that, that defined part of our masculinity, which is what I, what I referenced earlier. So I, I think challenges plays a really big part of being in our power because we get to know ourselves through challenge. We get to know the range. Right? We talk about emotional range and spectrum. And one of the reasons why I am emotionally mature and continue to work on that, of course, because there are times when I'm emotionally very immature. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but one of the reasons why is because I challenge myself and I take myself to very uncomfortable places, usually through the physical, but it's not just through the physical. Like I'm really good and adept at taking myself through deep physical challenge, but I also do the emotional shadow work and the spiritual work. I do the things that I don't want to do that I know are going to yield me a, a result. Cause we know, 
When we get honest with each other, we know when shit's good for us and when it's not, right? When it's going to yield a healthy result. And so that's something that we, you know, we, we, we get to do as men is challenge ourselves, not be afraid of that. Yeah. I, I love the action component of that because I think, well, let me ask you this. Do you see confidence as more cognitive or emotional? And, and here's why I ask, because I think that when I was younger, I used to look at confidence as a feeling that I would wait for. And it, I think if you have that approach to confidence, you can wait a really long time. Mm. No, to answer your question, both. And the, in the physical as well. I think there's an intersection of confidence residing in um, cognition, emotionality, physicality, and even our own spirituality, you know, the meta, okay. the meta ideas that we have about our own selves and, and humanity and reality as well. Yeah, I, I like that. I appreciate that. And I like the idea of confidence as at least part cognitive because that makes it a decision yes. that you can, you can take action. You can get yes. physical. You can, can be deliberate with understand that you can learn what you need to learn to be successful in this project, whatever this project yes. is. Yes. And, the um, and then you don't have to wait for it. Correct. And the physical component for me is the, the proof, right? And what I mean by that is that you do the thing, you make the decision, the deliberate decision, to be, and that's in your cognition, to take on this challenge, right? And you're deliberate with it. And you experience the challenge and your body experiences the challenge and nervous system experiences the challenge. Now you have a very real experience of, oh, I overcame that. I moved through that and hear the lessons or here's the wisdom or here's the teaching. And then there's the emotional component is, is, is that there, the feeling that comes from that, even if you quote unquote failed, you know, the feeling and the sensation that comes from that is so deeply empowering and can be so rewarding if we're open to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great reminder that we have to get more comfortable with quote unquote failure. Yeah, for sure. It's feedback. Um, failure is that's feedback. a tough one. Yeah, it is. So let me ask you this. I'm, I'm aware of time. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have, that you would like to share? <laughs> Not that I can think of. I think we covered a fair amount today. It was great. Very, yeah, very fluid I, conversation. Fantastic conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and let me ask you this, where can people get a hold of you if they would like to do work with you or find out more? Yeah. So coachwithsteph, S-T-E-F.com. Uh, my main website is stephanossifandos.com uh, or social media at stephanossifandos. And for my men's work, I should, this is important, um, uh, social handle is mpb.movement at Instagram, that's on Instagram, and mpoweredbrotherhood.com. It's just an M, M, the letter M, poweredbrotherhood.com. Awesome. And we will put those in the show notes as well. And spell your name for me because I didn't catch it the first time. Of course, yeah, yeah. Stephanos, S-T-E-F-A-N-O-S, and Sifandos, S-I-F-A-N-D-O-S. Thank you very much. As I Thank you. told you when Johnny first said it, I was like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> um, you know, very not much experience with the Greek names. Yeah. Oh, so good. anyway, Steph, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I thought this was a hell of a conversation for men. Um, I guess women too. And, um, I guess that's it for this episode of the evolved caveman. If you liked this episode, please remember to like rate, review and share. If you didn't like it, you don't need to do a damn thing. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 